Hello and welcome to Is This Democracy, the podcast where we discuss the ongoing conflict over how much democracy and for whom there should be in America. My name is Thomas Zimmer. I am a historian at Georgetown University. I'm Lily Mason. I'm a political scientist at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute. I'm Perry Bacon. I'm a columnist at the Washington Post. We are recording this episode once again on a Wednesday, November 30th. I always say that because I think... I'm just hoping that in case something super important happens between recording and 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 releasing the episode, people should know that we just didn't know that this happened, right? Um, so I hope everyone had a nice Thanksgiving weekend with maybe a little bit of politics discussions. I don't know, but not too much. Um, we all need a break sometimes. Um, so today we want to start with, well, the latest in Trump world, I guess, specifically Trump having famous anti-Semites and white power extremists over for dinner at Mar-a-Lago. We'll talk about what, if anything, is to be learned from this affair, which in many ways is just Trump yet again um, confirming what we should all know about him and his movement, but maybe, you know, maybe can serve as sort of an important reminder. Um, And in the second part, we'll do something slightly different. We, We thought it might be a good idea to have a discussion about how best to describe the conflict over democracy, about the terms we do find useful to capture what's going on in American politics. And about you know those we find rather misleading. Um, we'll talk about our skepticism regarding the term backlash, whether or not it still makes sense to use the term conservatism to describe the Republican Party, um, questions like that. And, and that will hopefully serve as a really useful reflection on what American democracy is up against and what the best ways are to understand, explore, and conceptualize the conflict that defines this country. So that will be part two, um, probably the bulk of this episode, I guess. Um, and also we, we, we maybe part one of sort of an ongoing series of us diving into um, these kinds of issues, terms. Again, today it will be sort of useful terms, and then maybe in future weeks we'll do one on terms we really don't find useful or concepts we don't find useful. Again, that's part two. But we start, and I say this with a heavy sigh and more than a little bit of exasperation, with Donald Trump. So what we know so far is that uh, Trump invited or or agreed to have uh, Kanye West uh, over to his house for dinner. Uh, he Kanye West was arrived with guests who presumably Trump had not actually invited, but they were all allowed in to Mar-a-Lago. Um, with a a former Trump campaign advisor driving the car. She presented only her credit card as a form of identification. No one was identified as they went in. Uh, At dinner, uh, famously now, uh, Kanye asked Trump to be his vice president in his campaign for 2024, uh, the U.S. presidency. Trump apparently, in response, started yelling and insulting uh, Kanye's ex-wife, Kim Kardashian. And then, very much like a reality show, uh, presumably spoke with both uh, Nick Fuentes, a famous uh, anti-Semite, racist, and misogynist, and Milo Yiannopoulos, who was disgraced a number of years ago for promoting pedophilia. The response from the Republican Party uh, was mixed, at best, I think the most forceful denunciation of this was Mitch McConnell uh, saying that anti-Semitism and white supremacy have no place in the Republican Party. However, uh, anyone, as he said, anyone advocating that point of view is highly unlikely to ever be elected president. So the problem apparently is electability, not the white supremacy and anti-Semitism. Uh, so we have a lot of mixed uh, reactions to this. Again, this is just Trump, I think, coming back into our politics, bringing his reality television uh, ethos with him. So overall, what do we what do we think this is going to do? Trump, uh, you know, he, he had dinner with these extremists. He did not denounce their views. He said that he didn't know them. Um, so the first the first question I'm going to go to Perry. Re- Perry, you, you said in a previous episode that you know, sort of Trump. Trump's Trump's follies are kind of never uh, necessarily punished, and uh, and so I guess the first question is: is this is this case any different? It is being covered really negatively by the press. The focus is not like when he announced the Muslim ban. I feel like in 2015 there was sort of a coverage, almost curiosity about it. Oh, that's weird. I, but he he probably doesn't really believe that. There's a lot of real. The coverage has been negative, and the Republican intelligency establishment, whatever the term we want to use for them, has 
been pretty critical in saying he shouldn't have attended this meeting. So I think this uh, Mitch McConnell, as you said, was pretty striking that, you know, our party does not tolerate anti-Semitism. A person who meets with such people is not going to be the nominee. So that's like more critical than usual. Uh, Kevin McCarthy was a little bit more equivocal about it, tried to dance around a little more. But you've seen Republicans say this meeting should not happen. And Trump himself is basically trying to suggest he did not know who was coming to meet with him, suggesting even Trump was in the message was a bad meeting. But the core of the comments you can still see is, and we're we're in this like Trump announced a couple weeks ago, we're still in this dance where Republican elites are saying um, Trump hurt us in terms of electability, hinting that DeSantis would be better in terms of electability. But if you press them on would you, what happens if Trump wins the nomination? They won't comment, which tells us that either they're saying this behavior is bad for now when Trump is not the leader of the Republican Party and the nominee for president. But it still seems like if he's the, if he's the president or the party nominee, they would feel differently about these kind of incidents and be less critical of them. So they're still okay with this stuff. They're not really saying he is an unacceptable figure. They're not there yet, and I don't think they ever will get there. If we quickly talk about the <clears throat> the thing itself, and 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 you know, there's obviously the re- the, the issue of you know, how Republicans reacted to it. Um, the thing itself, we have not learned anything new about Trump. Right. I mean, we've seen this silly dance a few times. Remember when he was enthusiastically endorsed by David Duke in 2016 and Trump's reaction was exactly the reaction we've gotten now. He says, oh, I don't know this guy. And then he completely refuses to denounce him. Right. In the case of Duke, I think Trump obviously knew who that was. He had publicly talked about him before. So that was clearly a lie. In the case of Fuentes, I think it is very possible that Trump didn't know him or not really. Right. I think I think that's you know, that's that's plausible at least. But the telling part is, A, according to reporting, Trump really liked Fuentes and was take, taken with him, I think is the, the formulation that I've seen. Um, and B, he simply won't dis- disavow him, right? He won't de- denounce him after the fact because, okay, so you didn't know this guy. So now everyone's telling you, well, he's a Holocaust denying white power activist. How about saying, well, that's not okay. He won't do that, right? So I think, you know, it does... It's it's a reminder, right, that what, Trump is a white white supremacist. I think that's fairly well established, and and sort of not a sort of, you know, I don't think that that produces any kind of outrage out there to say that. It's also Trump displays a specific form of anti-Semitism. You know, he he's obviously subscribing to all sorts of anti-Semitic stereotypes. Um, he's been using and pushing all these sort of anti-Semitic tropes. They only like money. They're only loyal to Israel. Trump has no conception of American Jews as Americans, as people who belong here, as people who have their own identities. He entirely sees them as, well, do you belong in Israel or like loyal to Israel, that sort of thing, which is very typical of the right and the far right, right? This of they're pro-Israel in the sense that, you know, they're fully on board with the idea of an ethno-nationalist state with a clearly defined ethno-religious identity, right? And, you know, that's where they believe all the Jews belong and 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 if they are here in America right in in what the right considers a white christian ethno-nationalist religious state well then they are outsiders or the other right unless they are fully on board with the right wing uh, political project, then that's kind of okay. Trump always says, well, they should be grateful to me or whatever, to the Republicans, right? So that means the citizenship, the belonging, it's always conditional because really these people don't belong here. They belong in their own ethno-nationalist, sort of ethno-religious state. Um, and that's all that kind of stuff has been there forever, right? So um, that's just not nothing new to me, I don't think. And not to mention, I mean, the the fact that he didn't maybe potentially know Nick Fuentes before the dinner, he knew Kanye or Ye, I guess I'm, we're supposed to call him now. Um, you know, he knew that Ye was was spouting anti-Semitic things, certainly, uh, and invited him anyway. So it's not like he invited some, you know, totally tolerant, extremely liberal, progressive thinking person. And then, and then, oops, they came with a white white supremacist, right? Like that's not even close to what happened. And then furthermore, not only has he not disavowed the views of the people who, who were at his, at his dinner, uh, but he is, according to the Guardian recent reporting, he's actually increasingly doubling down on not doing that because he's afraid of alienating 
part of his base, which I think should probably tell us something about who he thinks his base is, right? If he's refusing to condemn anti-Semitic, racist, and misogynistic views, then that means that he expects that some solid part of his supporters are anti-Semitic, racist, and misogynist. Isn't that right? To me, that's that's the thing, right? Not disavowing. That's that's the interesting part here, right? Um, and not just from Trump, but I think Perry, you're right. There, there's been a little bit of like clearly, like Republican elites are not comfortable with this, right? They're not just brushing it off, but also it's not enough to like fully announce a break with Trump, right? That's also not happening, right? Um, and and by the way, like. Earlier this year, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar um, um, went to this guy's, uh, Nick Fuentes, like, I think he calls it the America First um, Political Action Conference or something, um, and where he hugged Marjorie Taylor Greene and enthusiastically, like, you know, welcomed her and whatever. And we had the same kind of thing afterwards. Kevin McCarthy said something like, well, that's not cool. I'm going to have to really talk to her. And I guess she got a stern talking to or something. But of course, it, it's never enough to properly break with these people, right? And I always think it's really worth listening to the Republicans, um, what they think their base is, right? Because clearly they think we can't like um, forcefully denounce this kind of stuff. We cannot forcefully and enf- like enforce this red line because it will alienate a significant part of our coalition, right? Um, whatever else we want to say about this. That's the thing for me. The the GOP is a party in which hanging out with a Holocaust-denying leading white power activist will not get you ostracized, right? It's a party whose base is so animated by white nationalism, a party in which white nationalism and white supremacy are such powerful forces that even if you wanted to, you cannot forcefully denounce it. That is sort of the, the big thing for me, right? Where again and again and again, if you're asking the question, so why... Why is this never enough for them to properly break with someone who hangs out with Nick Fuentes or won't denounce Nick Fuentes? Well, it's because they themselves understand, no, like these forces inside our own coalition are so, coalition are so strong, we cannot do that. And in fact, I mean, it's important to point out America First as a, as a name is a direct reference to the pro-Nazi movement in the United States before World War II. It was the formal name of the pro-Nazi movement. Um, in the 1930s and 1940s, in the United States, Americans who were who were pro pro Hitler and pro uh, pro Nazi at the time. Not only does Nick Fuentes uh, take that title, but so does Stephen Miller, Trump's former advisor, who is extremely, uh, let's just say, anti-immigrant at best. Um, and another and another thing to point out here is that you know this is I think it's a it's sort of the distillation of everything Republicans have been trying to do over the last few decades, which is have it both ways, right? They want to be able to dog whistle about racism and not get called racist. Um, They want to be able to support Trump when he's being uh, anti-Semitic or misogynistic, but not get called anti-Semitic or misogynistic. Going all the way back to the Southern strategy of the 1970s, this has been the line that the Republican Party has been increasingly trying to walk. And in the era of Trump, it gets a lot more difficult to not take a side between racism and not racism um, and between are we going to be considered actual, you know, actual, we believe that everyone has the same rights or are we going to take the side of, of white supremacy? And that's, it, it seems like every day that Trump is in the public, it becomes harder and harder for Republicans to not take a side on those types of arguments. I want to say one thing about the outrageousness and ridiculousness of this all, right? All of the people who had dinner there at Mar-a-Lago are ridiculous. This whole scene at Mar-a-Lago is ridiculous, right? But that doesn't make it harmless or like not dangerous, right? I'm this Fuentes guy, right? So, so okay, so yes, he's a young dude. I think he's like 24 or whatever, um, who likes to provoke people. He's a professional troll. Yes, provocation is his business model, right? But also, he is one of the premier white power activists and Holocaust deniers in the country, those things are not mutually exclusive. Like, don't like, don't say, oh, well, he's just a troll. Yes, of course, they're all just, they're all trolls. Marjorie Taylor Greene is also a troll, but they're not just that, right? The outrageousness, the how over the top it all is, that's a deliberate strategy, right? It's it's meant to sort of endear him and um, his ideas to other young dudes who find that funny, right? And it's also meant to insulate them all from criticism to some extent because 
now like there's this how bad could it be look it's it's not serious it's funny they're, they're just being funny right they're, they're using funny memes like funny frog memes or whatever um ultimately it's all focused on the goal of spreading these ideas and ideologies of entering them into the mainstream of the american right and the republican party and they've been very very successful with that right we've seen a significant rise of militant white of, sort of the militant white power movement and so again just because it's yes absolutely ridiculous it doesn't make it harmless and i fear that you know after so many years of trumpism we've become so inundated with political stunts and so accustomed to outrageousness and and sort of outrageous political acts that we might just be becoming numb to how extreme and how dangerous that all is right like we must not be lulled into a false sense of security by the clownishness and the ridiculous of it all kanye west and nick quintus and, and and donald trump having dinner at mar-a-lago like it's laughable, but not just laughable, right? So some of his, some of history's most successful authoritarians were considered goons and buffoons and clowns by their contemporaries until they became goons and buffoons in power, right? There is no natural law that democracy can't be brought down by ridiculous people and clowns. It absolutely can, right? And so, yes, yes, absolutely. Call them like ridiculous because they are, but do recognize how you know dangerous and extreme this all is. So with that, we're going to switch to, as Thomas kind of previewed, talking about some of the terms and ideas that kind of anchor how we see democracy and kind of why we're doing this podcast. So we're going to focus this week on kind of terms that Thomas writes about a lot in terms of the democracy conflict. We'll have another episode where we talk about polarization and, and partisanship and a lot of things that Lily's a real expert on as well. So where I want to start is to... You know, when Thomas and I first started, you know, talking about issues a couple of years ago, uh, one thing he, you know, the way he phrased it was we're not just in a conflict over, quote unquote, democracy, but the terms he used were egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy as the thing that we're trying to, people like me are trying to achieve in America, egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy. So Thomas, talk about those three words, egalitarian, multiracial, and pluralistic. And then we'll have Lily sort of respond to and talk about those three words and her, her view of those of that framing as well. The first reasonable question to ask is why make things so complicated, right? Why why add a bunch of um other words in front of like qualifiers in front of democracy? Um because I you know, I I do recognize that it, it makes for a rather clunky phrase, right? Um if, if you say the whole thing. But I think I think it's important because to me, the first question we should ask whenever someone says democracy is, what kind of democracy, how much, and for whom, right? Because I think we should recognize that historically, the term democracy has applied to polities and societies that differed widely in terms of who was actually allowed and enabled to participate in the political process as equals, right? And even more so with regards to like whether or not... Um, you know that that promise of like equal participation was actually extended to spheres beyond politics, to the workplace, the family, the public square, right? Um, and and that is to me where, where I think if you just say democracy, well then look, we should acknowledge right that um, in the U.S. democracy before the civil rights legislation of the 1960s meant a system that was, by contemporaneous comparison, fairly democratic if you happened to be a white Christian man, but something else entirely if you were not, right? And since 1965, um, the conflict over whether or not America should should actually sort of, again extend that vision of of egalitarian democracy become a country in which all people are truly created equal that has continued to define the political conflict. Um, and I think again, I think the American project has always been shaped by two competing um, visions for what for what the country should be. On the one hand, there is that idea that the world works best if it is dominated by wealthy white men broadly speaking. On the other hand, there is that goal of creating a society in which the individual status would not be significantly determined by wealth, by race, by religion, by gender, by gender or sexual orientation. Not just restricted democracy, right? Um, that sort of leaves traditional hierarchies largely intact under the guise of political equality on paper, but an egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic system that levels those hierarchies enough at least, right? So that citizens would actually be enabled to participate in democratic self-government as equal. 
principles. I think that is what right-wingers have their problem with, right? This sort of egalitarian vision. Um, and that's what they are determined to prevent, right? I think that is, to me, what what's crucial here. Um, I think this is conservatives, the American right has not gone from pro-democratic to anti-democratic. If, if, if you have a very sort of just simplistic, uh, minimalist understanding of, oh, it's democracy, yes or no, right, then you would have to assume that the American right has gone from pro-democratic to anti-democratic. But I think they've always been on board with a sort of restricted version of democracy, right? They've been willing to tolerate it, but determined to prevent egalitarian multiracial pluralism, right? Because their allegiance has never been to democratic ideals. Their acceptance of democracy was always conditional. It was always depending largely on whether or not it would be set up in a way and restricted in a way that allowed for traditional white elite dominance to be upheld. And I think that is actually sort of, again, where I think you, you get a much clearer understanding of, of the, the, the conflict that is that is shaping this country. If you, if you don't just think of it in democracy, thumbs up or down, black and white, yes or no, but think about, okay, so what kind of democracy is that actually actually supposed to be? What does that look like in practice? Because that is, I think, what is animating the conflict. Let me probe a little more and then go to Lily just to ask, okay, define the terms egalitarian and pluralistic, and then tell me how multiracial as opposed to multicultural. Oh, okay. So, so I mean, look, I, I want to be very clear. I think it's not... Um, I'm not like wedded to like super specific definitions of any of these terms. I don't think it's 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 super helpful to get bogged down in sort of these definitional struggles over you know this or that term, like the, the labeling, right? But I, what I think these these three dimensions, um, um, egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic, to me, what they're supposed to do is to um, f- the egalitarian focuses on a leveling of um, discrepancies in general, but also wealth discrepancies, right? Like up and down, right? The multiracial is sort of the leveling of racial discrepancies, right? Racial hierarchies. And the the pluralism is sort of a a leveling of all sorts of it's a, that that is sort of the the least uh, least sort of clearly defined term i guess but it's it, it's a general a recognition of what is i guess a good a good thing to think about is what is the opposite of pluralistic the opposite of pluralistic would be like um sort of, sort of christian dominance or whatever a specific culture right a specific culture specific gender norms specific values specific family values all that being sort of dominant in this society whereas pluralism is the acceptance of not one thing not one culture being dominant why but and, and accepting that people want to live their lives in 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 different ways right so i think that is they're not like um all these all these things sort of intersect right it's it's not like you could just say egalitarian that would be totally fine right because basically that means the leveling of those hierarchies right but i just want to make sure that because race is just um you know that is the fundam- has been the fundamental conflict for forever so i want to emphasize that specifically and i want to emphasize this pluralism part because it seems to me that with the rise of that sort of white christian nationalism thing it's very important that it is the it is the the, the fundamental anti-pluralism that seems to define uh these people very much so that is why again i think it would be fair to just say egalitarian democracy i just think it's worth uh, sort of adding a, a specific emphasis on those two, other two dimensions. And pluralism itself is something that political scientists have looked at, um, sort of thinking about it as uh, an indicator of a, basically a diverse society, right? How do we have multiple voices in a democracy that all get to be heard? Um, and so, you know, understanding that the United States is not monolithic, it's not, it's not, um, homogeneous from the very beginning. It hasn't been. And the idea of America for at least in, you know, in the last hundred or so years is the idea of a place where all different kinds of people from different places with different cultures can come and live and be successful and thrive. Um, That idea is the idea that all of these different voices can be heard is pluralism. That's what we. That's the ideal of a democracy. Is that is that everyone gets to be to be to be part of this country. Um, that's part of the reason we have birthright citizenship, right? If you're born here, you get to be a citizen. Not every country has that, and and part of the reason we do is because if you if you're born here, then you can then you can try to make it. Um, 
the you know one of the things I think that it, that this idea is one of the reasons that this idea is so um, challenging, especially to people on the right, is that it's it you know it's sort of like uh, thinking about the 1619 project, right? By un by sort of uncovering the the old evidence of of a lack of actual full democracy. It's almost like you are insulting, you know, the very founders themselves, and and you're and you're insulting everything that a lot of these people grew up thinking about the United States. Part of the reason that that's it's so offensive and it's so difficult to process is that a lot of the equality that we have right now happened pretty darn recently, right? It's like it wasn't until 1976 that women could get a credit card without the the approval of their husband. 1976. This is so these all of these changes that we're seeing, and even of course the much more recent Black Lives Matter, Me Too, right? These are movements that are new, that are uncomfortable for people who are accustomed to a certain traditional social order. They involve, as I think I've said before, they involve uncovering secrets that were, you know, secrets about women's harassment, secrets about the police treatment of black Americans. These are all things that were not necessarily known to a lot of particularly white Christian men on the right. They actually did not know, right? Or the things that they did know, they considered those to be the natural order of things. So so it is asking, it's asking, it's asking a lot for us to say, first of all, the your traditional understanding of hierarchy has to change. And second of all, our democracy has never fully been one before. And we need to completely rethink what we want as a country. And a lot of the people on the right are saying, actually, that's not what I want. I don't want that kind of democracy. I want the kind that the founders made. And honestly, I think that is so important to emphasize how, what a recent, uh, or a recent invention, so to speak, uh, American democracy as, as anything that is recognizable as a democracy in what is today the widely accepted uh, parlance. And again, lots of definitions out there. There's no like the one widely accepted definition of democracy, but broadly speaking, right, it's a sort of majoritarian system or a system that plays by majoritarian rules in which all citizens are uh, allowed to sort of take part in the political process as as equal, right? That sort of thing, right? It America was not that until 1965, right? I think a really not good starting point for like trying to understand not just American history, but also the present is to think of America as you often hear this, oh, it's the oldest consolidated democracy in the world, right? Look, again, depending on your definition of democracy, that's not incorrect necessarily, right? Because again, depending on how you define those terms, okay, fine. But again, pre-1965, pre-civil rights, voting rights legislation of the 60s, pre-actually uh, uh, and, and not not just allowing on paper, but actually enabling um, uh, black people to actually participate in the democratic process. America had absolutely no claim to be anything but a white man's democracy, right? Um, and by the way, international observers at the time absolutely saw that, right? This is not something that you know, I'm sitting here in 2022 and I'm looking back and I'm saying, oh, that was not a democracy. No, up until 1965, international observers regularly classified America is not a full democracy, right? That was just absolutely standard. Everyone said, oh no, they don't, they don't let, they don't let black people vote. So, you know, um, so again, like this is not some outrageous, uh, uh, you know, 2022 claim. Right. Um, and I think that's changes that has to change our perspective on, on the conflict. Because again, if you start from this whole oldest consolidated democracy thing, then people often say, oh, like stable consolidated democracies, they don't fall, they don't get in trouble, right? Yeah, okay, fine. But America is not an, like an old, there's nothing consolidated about, again, multiracial pluralistic democracy in America. It's never been a consolidated thing. It's a, it's a relatively recent experiment, an experiment that started in 1965, and it's never been uncontested, right? There's never been a moment of this not being contested. So again, forget about this stuff about, oh, like old consolidated democracies don't fall. Fine. America is not that, right? Just to follow up one thing, we've had this, we have this campaign that was about a lot of coverage of election deniers. It was a frame the media decided to so on. And that was sort of a, demo, you know, the democracy team at News Outlet X says, we count up the election, people who re reject the results of the 2020 election. We basically implied those people are 
anti-democratic or not quite good on democracy issues. But you all's view of democracy would therefore suggest politicians can be bad on democracy, even if they will admit Joe Biden won in 2020, right? I don't know about bad on democracy, but I would say, yes, you can be anti-Trump and anti-MAGA and and not be on the sort of election denier kind of side, but still also not be right a champion of multiracial pluralistic democracy. I would say Liz Cheney is in that space, right? Who clearly, and I, I, I want to make clear that that really matters. The difference really matters. She does not accept, right? Um, a sort of an, a violent authoritarian assault on um, the political system, and and it really matters that she that she draws that line and that she's willing to hold that line. That really matters, but that doesn't make her a champion of egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy. Clearly not. She's clearly also not on board with that vision. She clearly thinks America should not right. Um, be that America should be in Liz Cheney's vision, right? A place where uh, defined by sort of white Christian ideas, right? Um, and so I think this is actually the central conflict on the right between those who want to uphold sort of traditional white Christian elite rule from within the confines of a narrowly restricted version of democracy. That's Liz Cheney to me, right? And those who want to pursue that goal, the same goal, by openly embracing authoritarianism, right? Conservatives have always wanted to restrict democracy. They've always been sort of worried about too much democracy, right? But they are turning to authoritarianism. Not all of them, but but many of them are turning to authoritarianism, open authoritarianism, because they are failing, because they see that their idea of real, quote-unquote real, read white Christian patriarchal, America is under siege from these forces of multiracial pluralism, right? And so in that situation, right, again, they say, well, look, then we're going to have to go all in and even embrace like, you know, violent extremism. I think that is sort of the the conflict on the right. So it's not, again, if you want to really understand what is the the, the the conflict on the American right, it's not just democracy, yes or no, right? That is, or it's, uh, let me say this, it's not just democracy versus authoritarianism. It's That's too simplistic a, a, a metric, I think, to, to understand what the difference is. And, and, and you, like, if it's just democracy versus authoritarianism, right, then there's the MAGA Trumpists, and then there's everyone else. But in that everyone else group, right, there is still a very, very important life conflict, right, over how much democracy and for whom with different sides, right? And in, in that conflict, right, um, Liz Cheney is not on the same side with people who say, look, it is time for a properly egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy. I think it's also important to remember that this is not just like wild creative thinking on our part, right? The ingredients for this type of democracy are already in the constitution. It's just that some of them we don't follow and some of them people are actively working to undo. But the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments that you know ended slavery and franchised black men and, and provided equal protection under the law to black men, the 19th Amendment, which enfranchised women, and, and the you know, Equal Rights Amendment, which never happened, that, that would have provided equal protection under the law to women. Um, you know, these are all things that are part of our, uh, part of the, not only that these amendments are part of the Constitution, part of American legacy, that these, the, the, the principle that we should be including more and more people. As we move forward and our Constitution evolves, we are adding... The, the inclusion of people. Now, of course, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were directly contradicted by Jim by 70 years of Jim Crow, right? Which is why we needed the civil rights legislation of 1964 and 1965. Um, but it but it's but it is important to know that that whole time these amendments were in there. So it's, it's we're not sort of we're not rejecting the original constitution of the United States by by suggesting this is a desirable type of democracy to live in. This is fully within the idea of of the constitution and within the idea of what many people in American history thought that America should be. This is so important to me because the the American right claims the mantle of patriotism, right? Um, we are the real patriots. But I think the, the pro-democracy camp should reclaim a certain constitutional patriotism and say, no, look, these ideals are in there and we want to realize them, right? We want to put them in practice. And there's also a, a certain civic nationalism, right? Again, like America as a nation defined not by a, you know, a certain demographic, a certain religion, um, but by the dominance of a certain de demographic or religion, but by, again, if you come here and you accept these ideals of 
egalitarianism and and pluralism than than you are an American. That is how we define our nation. There is a civic nationalism to be reclaimed, and there is a sort of uh, a constitutional patriotism to be reclaimed. And and we, I'm going to say we. I'm German. What what do I know? Um, but again, like the, the pro democracy camp should not just leave that language of and that mental of patriotism we are the real patriots we are the real like we love america right we should not leave that to the american right right and accept this idea that you know those who want to actually um realize the promise of multiracial egalitarian uh, uh pluralism um th- those are somehow people who are not patriotic or or are not on board with sort of the the american vision right but that is again at the at least as american as a, a vision as that other vision right and and i think i think that's that's something to again i'm not a big supporter of like nationalism anyway but it's it's a problem i think it's a problem for the american not the left but again the pro democratic small d democratic camp to have so completely abandoned this um again this whole the, the language and the, the mantle of like patriotism and and sort of a civic nationalism you haven't quite said this but last question on this part thomas you've so is the opposite of egalitarian multiracial pluralistic democracy i'm thinking the words you've used is the opposite of that white christian male elite democracy is that what republicans are for white just talk about that a little bit is is it, is it sort of white Christian male elite? Is that what we're talking about as the form of democracy Republicans are for, or what is that Republican democracy there for? Yeah, I would say that's what it is. I mean, to me, again, if you want to really break it down, one promise is that of egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy. The other promise is that of again, um, the world works best if it is dominated by um, wealthy white Christian men, basically, right? If, if you want to. And Marco Rubio and Tim Scott can be part of a party that believes in white Christian male elite plural. I mean, so that's the question I get a lot from people. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's the, the role of, um, people who are not white, rich, white, um, men, Christian men, right? Because in one of those dimensions, they are not right. They might not be white, right. Or they might not be uh, uh, rich necessarily, right? Um, and and then you get this, right? So how how can you possibly claim this is what the conflict is all about? This is what the American right is all about. This is what the Republican Party is all about. Why would like uh, I don't know, people in Ohio, right? Um, they're not rich. They're not elite. Why would they be on board with this project, right? It's probably best to think of this as it's a project of upholding and preserving and entrenching. Um, sort of traditional hierarchies, right? And not just in politics, but in all spheres of life, in the family, in the workplace, in the public square. And if you think about it like that, it becomes clear how that's not just attractive to people who are actually super rich, like whatever, like billionaires, uh, 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 businessmen, whatever. If you are someone in Ohio, in your community, like in a rural town, whatever, and you are a white man, there's a certain type of um, you know, authority that comes with that in a sort of white Christian patriarchal system. There's a certain type of authority that comes with that in your family, in your workplace, right? And um, it is attractive to people, to some people, to again uphold that sort of, of net traditional authority, that sort of traditional those traditional hierarchies. Um, again, it's it's a multi-dimensional system, right? And the other thing about again, um, how can a black man be part of this, right? Why is that so surprising? I mean, first of all, anyone can be part of that sort of project. If you're willing to support that project, they will they will they will take you in. Absolutely. That's that's not surprising, but but your your inclusion as a black man for instance, right? Your inclusion in that sort of coalition of of conservatives of the American right. It's conditional on you vowing to um, support that project, right? That's the thing. It's never your inclusion in the body politic. Your inclusion as um, as equal is is never unconditional, but it it should be unconditional. You should be accepted as equal regardless of whether or not you are supporting a specific version of America. Again, as long as you are supporting a specific version of America, they will take you in. That's the same with like you know, Donald Trump and the Jews, like 
you're fine. You're fine if you're here and you vote Republican and you support me, right? But it is conditional. It is conditioned on you accepting and supporting that specific vision of uh, uh, for American society. It's also just I, I feel like that that question is rooted very much in the perspective of white men, right? The idea that they they maybe think about themselves thinking, well, I would never relinquish my status as a white person or as a man. So how, like, why would a black person relinquish any power at all, right? Like, like you can't possibly be part of this movement if it harms you in any way. Half of women believe in the patriarchy. It's not, right, they're willing to give up their own rights in order to have whatever success is given to them by the men around them. And as long as those men still have status, right? There are, it is absolutely possible for someone in a, in a marginalized group to hate someone in a different marginalized group. It happens all the time. It actually happens the majority of the time. And the idea that someone simply because they are part of a, one marginalized group would then believe in the equal status of all marginalized groups is a very kind of egocentric way of thinking about things that I think really is rooted very deeply in like white masculinity because the, that thought doesn't occur in white masculinity, but it, but it, for a lot of white mas- masculinity, but, but it, it, it's a very essentializing way of thinking about people, right? You ha- you happen to be a member of this group by virtue of the color of your skin or your gender. Therefore, you must behave in the way that I expect everyone in that group to behave. That's just a pretty, it's, I think it's a pretty silly way to think about other other human beings and the ways that they interact with, with their groups and other social groups. And also the way status is um, acquired in a society like the US society, right? Again, like, yes, if, if you are a white woman, um, the the patriarchal system is is like in a vacuum not great for you but if your own status in society is entirely dependent on your proximity to um the white male patriarchy then it can be entirely reasonable or rational right to again vote for that sort of or you know support that sort of political project so we're going to move to talk about um how thomas often describes the what's happening on the right which he refers to as a reactionary counter mobilization. So let's focus on the second part of, uh, first for whatever reason. So let's focus on the second part first. So counter mobilization, I think is a phrase, the phrase you often read in the news is I think backlash, like the Republicans are doing this as a backlash to Obama being elected, or they're doing it as a backlash to the protest in 2020. So Talk about counter-mobilization as a term versus backlash. Yeah, so I, I've used the term backlash a lot, but I've come to think that we should use it less and be more skeptical about its implication and the associations that come with it. And I should say that my thinking around this has been strongly influenced by the work of historian Larry Glickman, who's at Cornell and who has talked and written a lot about the problems with the term backlash and the, sort of the backlash narrative, right? The, the problem with the backlash narrative is that it tends to put the agency solely with traditionally marginalized groups who are therefore ultimately at fault, right, for causing this reaction, this almost inevitable sort of near-automatic response, right? A backlash is just who's responsible for the backlash, but well, those who, I don't know, protest or, you know, uh, march or whatever, right? So in this, I think, um, it makes the backlash narrative uh, attractive to people who seek to delegitimize the supposed, you know, excesses of social justice activism or any kind of, sort of politics that aims to level traditional hierarchies, right? Because again, in this tale, right, the reactionaries, those who are part of the backlash, they have no agency and thus they cannot be blamed, right? If you have no agency because you're just automatically reacting to to, to something, then, well, you know, like, who's who's going to blame, to blame you, right? And I think this has, and this is again what, what Larry Glickman uh, uh, talks about a lot, this has often led to a specific kind of backlash politics, right? Driven by this logic of appeasement, of sort of pre, preemptive abandonment of justice and equality and progress in the name of, again, preventing backlash, right? This sort of white backlash politics and that has often been used to stifle deliberately stifle egalitarian policies um and again i think the term counter mobilization evades many of these issues 
to some extent at least, because the, the key is to acknowledge that reactionaries are actively mobilizing, right? They're doing something. They're deliberately actively doing something. They are deliberately participating in a political project of preventing America from you know, becoming what we just talked about, this sort of egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy. They have agency and therefore they can and they should be held accountable for the political choices they make and for the, the policies and the politi- politicians they support. Just to hone in quickly. So in other words, you have these massive protests in 2020 after George Floyd dies. And then in 2021, you have all these bans on different kinds of voting. And you have these bans on talking about race. You have these bans on books. And it's sometimes described as a, this is a backlash to the protests. But in reality, you're saying these are Republicans mobilizing in opposition to the racial justice movement. It's an important to think about it as them acting, not that the the protesters didn't made, make them do it, in other words, is what you're getting at. Right? Yes, I think it's important to think about ways to get that sort of the mechanical or mechanistic sort of associations that come with the backlash term, to get those out of there, right? To to give agency the people who are, um, you know, who are coming up with lists of books they want to ban, and it's just black offers on that list, right? They're not just um, automatically, like, that's not just the automatic backlash. What can they do? They have, they are making choices. They have agency. They are actively mobilizing, right? And and that's sort of what I think we should um, we should find a way to emphasize that more. Yeah, this is sort of it's sort of like the classic uh, abuser, look what you made me do type of line, right? Like I wouldn't have had to do this if you hadn't, you know, made me made me do it, and. And, uh, and I think it actually is that that example might even be instructive in the sense that what we're talking about is power, relative power in society. And, and the idea that no one, no one kind of willingly gives up power. Um, and for a lot of, for a lot of, of these people on the right, the idea of the status differential between them and people they, they consider to be below them in, in status, if that gap closes, they don't even, it's not even that they're surpassing them in terms of status, right? It's just that the relative status difference is is smaller. That is perceived as an affront to their status. And, and so the reaction to that is not automatic, right? It's not implicit, but but it is predictable, which is to fight against that sense of aggrievement and sense of status loss. And this is like a human thing, right? Like, I mean, all human beings any 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 person who has any any level of power wants to protect wants to protect that power but the the idea that people are automatically um automatically caused to to fight back against equality when when progress is made towards equality is is very much sort of this, you know, they, they couldn't help themselves. Uh, you forced me to become a Nazi by calling me a racist type of narrative. And it's, it's, it, it's, if you think about it from that perspective, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty unrealistic way to understand human behavior. And it privileges the behaviors of white men as always being rational, right? The people who, who are engaging in this backlash, quote unquote, backlash are, are presumed to be doing the natural thing, Rather than rather than sort of like desperately grasping for maintaining the power that they have over other groups, that's it. Not not giving them any any agency. I think is it 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 allows us to to excuse a lot of behavior that we shouldn't be excusing. It's a way of preserving white innocence. Is is what that's often been right? It's there's white innocence is this idea that regardless of how. I don't know, racist, misogynist, whatever, that the politicians and policies people, white people are supporting, they cannot be blamed for that. There must be, we must, we are encouraged, we're constantly encouraged to find ways to excuse that, some, some, find some apologetic kind of perspective on that. And and that can go different ways, right? It can go the, oh, they're just doing it because they're economically anxious, right? All the like they're just voting for George Wallace in 1968 or for Donald Trump in 2016 or for David Duke in the early 90s when he almost became a senator. That's just all because there's there's so much economic anxiety. That's one way of doing that. But but the the backlash narrative is another way of doing that, which is basically saying, look, you can't blame them. They're just there's just it's just this automatic 
uh, almost mechanical reaction um, to something someone else did, right? It's it's just what are you expecting? The real agency here, it, the real agency here, is with those protesters, and and it's just you know um, that's where we, we where we need to address sort of the, the blame, right? Where we need to direct the blame, and and I think again, um, I'm not saying the term backlash is useless or whatever. I'm just saying I am trying to think about terms that um, don't have you know, have the sort of right associations and not too many of the wrong associations. And I think the the term backlash has too many of those apologetic kind of um, associations. So let's, okay. So you could say it was a conservative counter mobilization and maybe in some ways we could talk about that too, but explain why you think it's better to frame that Thomas first as a reactionary as opposed to a conservative counter mobilization. So, this one is a little complicated for me and I'm not, my thinking on this is not like fixed or finished or whatever. Right. Um, I do think it's, it can still be useful and necessary to, to, to to talk about conservatism. But, um, I think to start with, it's, it's interesting that, um, on the right, ever more people who are at the center of conservative politics, right. Or close enough to it are rejecting the term conservative as a label for themselves and sort of conservative politics as their project. There was a really instructive piece in The Federalist a few weeks ago, shortly before the election. Federalist, for those who don't know, lucky you, um, is one of those supposedly <laughs> or formerly conservative outlets, a useful window, I think, into what's happening in this sort of right-wing, pundit, pseudo-intellectual kind of scene, right? And the piece was entitled, We Need to Stop Calling Ourselves Conservatives. Why? Because conservatism, according to the author of that piece, means, well, conserving and preserving the existing order, right? So specifically, sort of traditional America with traditional norms and values, and I would also say hierarchies, right? Um, so, um, and I think, indeed, this sort of understanding of conservatism is widely accepted, right? The focus on preserving and conserving what exists and push back against change if it threatens sort of the traditional order of things too much. That's not an exact definition, perhaps, but it's close enough, right? It's ultimately a project of sort of hierarchy maintenance, right? Th- those are my words. That's not the Federalist's words. But again, back to the Federalist piece, the author says, we don't want that anymore um, because it's not an option anymore. Why? Because America, traditional America, has already been destroyed and has become a, quote, woke dystopia, right? So instead, the author says, um, it's time for a revolutionary project, a radical fight against these un-American leftist forces. He says, we need to claim the mantle of revolutionaries. That's a quote. And how does he want to do that? By forcefully mobilizing the coercive power of the state to impose a return of the traditional order um, onto the country and defeat those enemies within, right? Um, One last quote from that piece. The government will have to become, in the hands of conservatives, an instrument of renewal in American life, and in some cases, a blunt instrument indeed. End of quote. And if that sounds like a threat, that's because that's exactly what it is. Um, this is so pervasive in right-wing thinking right now. Um, all this, like, I, I, I think back to a piece in The American Mind, that's the online publication of the Claremont Institute, this Trumpiest of all right-wing think tanks in March 2021, uh, where this guy, Glenn Elmers, is one of the Claremont people, wrote, conservatism is no longer enough. And, you know, it, <laughs> it was published with a big picture of a very manly man um, getting ready for a fight, like, like taping his wrists, right? Um, you see these same themes over and over and over again, conservatism no no longer um, enough, right? And again, this is where where they are, right? It's not about preservation for them anymore, but it's about aggressively turning the clock back. And it, again, in an aggressive, increasingly aggressive way. So I think the term reactionary rather than conservative can is, is better able to capture the aggressive stance towards the current order. This aggressive stance against liberalism, this sort of captures the specific attitude and disposition that I see increasingly uh, being at the center of, broadly speaking, conservative politics. Yeah, it's, I mean, a lot, this is a this is a popular line in in the Claremont Institute in particular, which is a, a conservative group that that actually John Eastman was a part of. John Eastman, one of the architects of the January sixth insurrection uh, and Trump advisor. The so it's not that it's in this like it's it's not just in this little intellectual world where this is these are ideas that people are bandying about, right? This is one of the people that believe this actually tried to tried to organize a coup. And that's very much not conservative, right? A coup is not a conservative thing to do. A, a coup is is reactionary, it's revanchist, it's something that is trying to go back in time. And I think when we were, you know, sort of 
in the aftermath of civil rights legislation and and women's rights movements, right? I think that people could call themselves conservative and mean, I want to go back to the time we were just in when these people didn't have these rights. But today, I think, I mean, to, to some degree, I sort of agree with, not, I don't agree with the argument, but I see where the argument is coming from, which is that we have made a lot of progress, right? We've made so much progress towards equality, not, not enough, but we've made a lot of progress towards equality so that to be conservative would be sort of to accept the place that we are. And that's not what the right is doing. They are rejecting the place that we are now and and push not only pushing against further progress, but t- trying to take us back in time. That's what Make America Great Again is about. It's about going backwards, undoing a lot of the progress that has been done and changing the society from something that it is today to something that would be unrecognizable, for example, to young people who have grown up during this era of, of increasingly increasing rights for more and more groups of people. And I think that's really important what you said, Lily. It's not just taking society back a tiny little bit, right? I think a lot of people, even on, broadly speaking, the center, are also thinking maybe it's it would be better to like turn the clock back a tiny little bit because those woke activists are actually getting a little loud in here. But what the right is doing, if you look at the political project, they want to turn the clock back at least to the pre-civil rights era, right? That's the whole thing, to dismantle the civil rights order, the post-1960 civil rights order. And in some ways, they want to go further back than that. I mean, if you look at sort of the what they want to do to the state's ability to regulate the economy um, or or this sort of the, the modern sort of the modern state um, in in sort of its post New Deal kind of uh, um, 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 state, they want to they want to take us back to like the 1920s in in many ways in, in that sort of era, right? Where they, again they want to completely dismantle basically the, the modern uh, modern bureaucracy, the modern state, and and all this sort of power to to, to regulate. Um, and that is again that's not conservative. That's a that's a pretty radical political project, I would say. 1920s, uh, not coincidentally, the the decade when women got the vote. Uh, Nick Fuentes famously believes that women shouldn't be allowed to vote. I think the role of misogyny here is also important to, to point out. And then a lot of a lot of people who are who are sort of on board with this are also really motivated by this, you know, the progress that women have made and are extremely uncomfortable with it. Even people who aren't on the far right are, are sort of tempted by this by this type of reasoning. So to finish this and to summarize a little bit is I read a piece in Politico, I think it was earlier this year, that said, there's this huge partisan fight, but we're not really clear what we're fighting over. And I found this to be a very strange piece, but I think this kind of, but if you aren't really following the issues closely, and it's like Mitch McConnell's on one party and Nancy Pelosi on the other, I think if you look at the conflict is between in Washington, between Pelosi and McConnell, they differ, obviously. But I think that is sort of, that you would say it's just like, partisanship gone insane. But I think if you think about the conflict, the way you all are discussing it, which is essentially that in some ways, the dim, a lot of, a lot of parts of the democratic party make, want to make America more small D democratic than it ever has been. And a lot of parts of the Republican party want to make America much less democratic than it is today. Then I think the con, like if you're talking about uh, one group wants to create a, a, a new kind of America that's, that's never existed before. And one group wants to return to a old America, then you could imagine the conflict would be very, very deep. And that's what you all are getting at, right? I mean, it's an absolutely stark um, conflict between two fundamentally incompatible visions for what this country should be. It could not be any clearer. I think this, what you just described, Perry, which absolutely is, um, so the, the impression you can get if, if, if all you ever do is sort of read that sort of, you know, that sphere of mainstream media, but it's, it's, it's a result of a, a sanitized uh, version of the political conflict, right? Where, again, I mean, like, I, I encourage everyone to, every every now and then, like, actually go look at what the conservative discourse is like, not in the New York Times, but in those conservative spaces, what they're actually saying. Um, because like to their credit, and I really want to, I really mean this, to their credit, there's nothing like insidious, sinister cunning going on there. They're saying, they're just they're being very clear, as clear as you can be. We don't want this. 
and we're going to mobilize the coercive power of the state to impose our will on all of you. Like they could not be any clearer about this. I mean, it's really, it's, it's just, it's a little ridiculous to me that anyone, like this is the most ridiculous type of like political, you know, discourse journalism for me. The type that is still clinging to this idea that, Oh, the two sides are whatever the same and there's nothing really at stake here other than stupid like Washington partisanship or like bickering or whatever. That's no, I mean it's again like the it it's really good every now and then to listen what the conservatives are actually saying um because they are being very honest about their vision about uh for for American society. It sort of reminds me of the scene in uh in Wizard of Oz when Dorothy meets the scarecrow and she asks him for directions to how to get to Emerald City and he tries to point in every single direction at once and he spins in a circle and falls down because you can't go in every direction at once, right? You can't it's impossible to do that. It's it's like a tug of war. They're, the Republican and Democratic parties are pulling on two ends of a rope that is not going to, that, you know, has to go one way or the other. Um, and I think that one of the ways that the U.S. is trying to deal with that right now is actually to to just basically allow blue states to go forward and allow red states to go backward. And that's not a tenable, it's not a tenable solution, but that is currently, I think, what we are actually witnessing is sort of letting people choose state by state which direction they're going to go and forcing the people that live in those states to live under those conditions. And that is a country falling apart, basically, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's to me, it's, it's really hard to see how do you do going forward, how do you keep that together in one, in, in the container of one sort of country, right? One sort of nation. Um, it, it is, that's a really dangerous situation. I want to say one more thing because... <laughs> since I've pushed back against the, using the term conservative, I, I want to make it a little more complicated than that because there are bad reasons for av- avoiding the term conservative. Sometimes it, some, sometimes people are not, sometimes are, people are saying, oh, this is not conservative. This has nothing to do with conservatism for bad reasons, right? You, you hear this quite a bit from like moderate, quote unquote, moderate conservatives, never Trumpers. Oh, you know, you guys like the, the Trumpists, whatever, and, and these people and the Federalists, you are not conservatives. You are not real conservatives. That's a little too convenient, right? Creating a neat separation between like pre, pre-2016, that was conservatism, and now it's something else, reactionary Trumpism. That's sort of an ap- apologetic tale in which the Trump era is conveniently presented as an aberration. That's not what I want to argue for, right? Um, let's not define conservative as something inherently good and noble, and then, oh, Trump is none of those things, so he can't be conservatives, right? Like, um, it, it, we need to recognize that the radicalizing reactionary counter-mobilization is very much in line with the conservative political project, right? The underlying vision for U.S. society is extremely consistent with modern conservatism, right? The vision of white Christian patriarchal dominance, that is the same vision that has animated modern conservatism as a political movement that formed somewhere in the middle of middle decades of the 20th century. Um, the key is to grapple with this, right? Yes, by the commonly accepted notion of conservative, again, in the preserving conserving kind of way. Today's Republican Party, the dominant factions on the right are not conservatives. But by that definition, again, conserve, preserve, modern conservatism as a political project, movement conservatism was never just conservative, right? Probably never even predominantly conservative. It was always reactionary in character. That's the thing, right? Conservatism as a political formation and movement should be seen on a spectrum, I think, from, again, the sort of more preserving, conserving type of conservatism very much all the way to the far right. And yes, I think previously, those more truly conservative forces, the type of, like again, uh, conservatism of limits is the term I heard Matthew Sitman say is one of the co-hosts of the fantastic New York Enemy podcast. That was more important on the right, the sort of preserving, conserving disposition and, and sort of demeanor. But the political project was always exceedingly clear about its goal and priorities, right? And, and this logic was always there. If true conservatism, the preserving kind, was no longer enough to uphold the traditional order, then clearly more radical steps would have to be taken, right? And in that way, all these sort of radicalizing reactionaries today are not breaking with the conservative political project, even if the way they go about pursuing that project no longer fits the widely held definition of conservatism. I think that's really, again, it's it's a little like the terminology here gets a little complicated because I basically just said, you know, modern political conservatism was maybe never conservative at its core. But that's the thing. We need to grapple with this, right? With sort of it's this 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 sort of mixture of continuity and, and radicalization that, that we're seeing. 
I guess one thing that you're, that Thomas, that your your comment just made me think about is I, I do wonder sort of what what happens to the never Trumpers when there is no more Trump, um, right? Because the line the line from from them often is, "I'm a conservative," meaning I want small government. But that idea of small government came out of a time when government was doing presumably too much to spread equality, right? To to create to, to create more equality in the country, and 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 a lot of the conservative movement was a reaction against that growing equality. And so small government was really just a sanitized way of saying, don't spread equality where I live. That's So th- then it became sanitized over decades, right? And so the, the people who are now never Trump, they actually don't have a problem with equality, a lot of them. Um, and but they, but they still believe in small government, and it's sort of hard to connect those two things together at this point. It's not exactly a consistent ideology, because where does that small government idea come from? And part of the reason they say this is, you know, Trumpism is not conservative is because what the MAGA movement has been trying to do is use the government to, for example, stop women from making decisions about their own health care. That's not small government, right? But it's fine with the quote unquote conservatives in the in the Republican Party because it's doing what they want to do. So this idea of, of small government being its own pure little nugget of, of ideology, I think, is something that we should be questioning anyway, because what does it mean without our understanding of, of who gets what rights, where and when? We need a more honest conversation about how much democracy and for whom do we really want. And it's it's not that's why I'm saying, like, let's not. Yes, there is the there is the democracy versus authoritarianism uh, sort of fault line, right? That defines the sort of small d democratic camp versus the MAGA camp. Okay. But there is another really, really important conflict to be had that's it's a difference of fault line. That is the, you know, how much democracy and for whom and do we really want to push this country, take the leap, right? Make the leap into uh, a truly egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy. And, and I think it, it would be better uh, for everyone to have a, a really honest discussion um, about this, right, and not have it obscured by have, have it obscured by, um, you know, pretending there's just the discussion is just Trump authoritarianism versus democracy because that is that is not that is not the only conflict that is sort of defining uh, American politics and, and society. All right, I think um, we'll end it here. We have many more terms that are commonly used that we find not so great um and and others we would love to see replace them we'll we'll do this again in, in the coming weeks we'll talk about centrism we'll talk about popularism we'll talk about polarization um i find those discussions very clarifying and, and really i think sharpening and, and somewhat of like you know laying the groundwork for what we're actually doing here right um but for today, that that is, I think, where we'll call it. Okay, before we go, as always, a few important things to note. Um, um, thank you to everyone who has reached out to us. We've received uh, quite a few emails, uh, most of them very nice. Thank you. Um, everyone who's taken the time to write a review, um, give us a rating. Um, that's very much appreciated. Thank you very much. Um, and again, if if you want to help us find an audience, grow an audience, um, help like like uh, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you have a little bit of time, leave us a rating, uh, leave us a review, um, and please tell people in your life about the show. Um, we will be releasing new episodes every week, usually on Friday morning. If you have any feedback, please email us at isthisdemocracypod at gmail.com and follow us on still Twitter, still going. Um, We want to thank our producer, Connor Lynch, who is making all this magic happen every week. And we want to thank you for listening. And we will be back next week. Until then, bye-bye.